Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome to Faith Matters three very distinguished scholars of the Amdiya Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. Just in terms of a brief introduction, of course, to my immediate right is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the UK Kazar Board here in, the, uh, in London. And uh, next to him, of course, is Molana Azhar Hanif Sahib, who is a senior missionary and also the vice president of the Amdiya Muslim community in the United States. Welcome, Azhar Sahib. It's lovely to have you back on the program. Great to be here. And to his right, of course, is a senior missionary and head of the French desk, Molana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib. Welcome to Faith Matters, gentlemen. We're going to stay in London for our first question from uh, someone who's written in before as well, Nurulain Siddiqui. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for your question. Um, Jahangir Saab, the question from Nurulain centers on purification and three verses from the Holy Quran are quoted. And each one, our question is suggesting, says in one case, for example, it suggests that the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would purify the people in another surah, which is then quoted, it's that for people themselves to purify themselves. And our question is saying, is there three different statements given? Which one should prevail? Um, I think the questioner has kind of touched upon the fact that uh, the three are linked. And of course, the real purification which is done of anybody is being done by, by Allah himself. We have to remember that no matter what efforts we, we make, what, no matter what we do, at the end of the day, it's Allah's fadl or His grace which actually brings us to, to salvation, which purification is all about. We purify our souls so that we can actually attain salvation. And that is solely the, uh, the gift of God, when he ca and He can give it to whomsoever He pleases. But of course, Allah wants His creatures to make an effort. And because the life that we, we live on earth is like this, we have to make efforts to, to, to attain to anything. And in spirituality, therefore, we find that it's exactly the same thing. We don't get, you know, something for nothing. You have to put in an effort. And this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is in uh, chapter 13, which is Surah Ar-Rad, verse 12, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna Allaha la yughayiru ma biqawmin, hatta yughayiru ma bi'anfusihim. Verily, Allah does not change the condition of a people until they change what is in their own selves. And therefore, Allah wants to see that the person is trying to purify himself or herself, and then the purification process will start. But how does this link up uh, with the Prophet Muhammad Well, obviously, the teachings which he has given, which are from Allah, are the things which are going to bring us this purification. But he also purified in another way. And that was by his own presence. It was his own aura of spirituality and, and purity 
which just by getting into contact with, with, with it, you know, a person could uh, start becoming pure and purified. And this is also part of the Quranic teaching, is it not, that that you should always remain with those who are truthful because they exert an influence, just as evil people exert an influence as well, on a person. So the purification uh, which the Prophet you know, brings about in a person is through his own personal purity. We get something of that, of course, through you know, uh, his, uh, the, 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 his life account, for example, when we see how he used to live, when we hear his words, when we read about him. We are kind, kind of, in a way, close to him, and that purification will take place. In another way, it is when somebody reflects his, his um, qualities in himself, as for example a Khalifa. We are blessed in the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to have a Khalifa, who is a reflection of the Prophet Muhammad So we have that you know, presence actually purifying us there as well. So all these things actually help the person to be purified. Allah does the purification, but it is the person who has to make the effort to do so. As Allah says, uh, so those who make efforts to reach us, we will definitely guide them to our ways. So the first effort has to come from the person. Everything else then comes from Allah through His Prophet Muhammad That's very clear, Jahangir. So as I said, just before we move on, I suppose they put it in a sort of everyday context as well. We're often told by you're judged by the company you keep. And often, again, that if you keep the company of the righteous, you know, that will reflect in your own actions, your own words, and mm -hmm. in your deeds as well. That's right. Um, this beautifully put, mm. that in essence, um, every prophet of God comes as a source of purity. Mm. And being in the presence of that prophet will impact on your own thinking, mentally and spiritually, the way you move about. Um, in one tradition, a companion was saying he felt hip hypocritical when he was away from the prophet. And he felt very focused and determined to do whatever he asked him to do when he was in his presence. So this companion was showing clearly in this tradition how much impact he, he, he received from being in the presence of the Holy Prophet Muhammad and how that weakened as he went away and went back to his daily activities of, of trade and family, whatever it was. So the whole idea of, of being in the presence of the holy and righteous people always has given us uh, some kind of uh, positive impact. And this is what creates in our mind a desire to be like them and to follow that style. And kind of like a, uh, you can say, almost a transference of their, their mind and spiritual state into our own mind and spiritual state. And that, that helps us to want to be uh, like them. So this is the idea of, of company. And the messenger said it in another way, a simple way. He says, if you have a stream of water flowing in front of your house, and five times a day you jump in that stream of water, will there be any dirt left on you? Mm -hmm. So he didn't say he's going to throw you in that stream five times a day. He says if you go into the stream five times a day. So both ways are there. As he says, the, the teachings of Islam are that stream in our life. But we must make an effort to actually go in the water and to be purified in that state. You know, you, you, it's not enough to have a bathroom in your house if you never take a shower. Yeah. You have to actually go in the shower, use the soap, yeah. use the water, and that will, that will cleanse Thank you. you. So the sources of purification are created by Allah, but now man must make an effort to go to them, to benefit from them, and to be purified. So both of these actions are, are important in, in this case. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, my thanks also to Nurlen for your question. Um, our next question comes from Wahid Ahmed Saab in Toronto. Assalamu alaikum, Wahid Saab, and thank you for your kind comments about um, 
MTA in more general and of course faith matters as well. Um, Dr. Saab, if I could come to you with this. He's been uh, to having discussions with uh, various non-Muslim friends, as he's put it, and he said that often in discussions and sitting down with friends, they often talk about the uh, carelessness and the sins of yesteryears and what the wrongdoings they did perhaps and they're more, as he terms them, <laughs> you know, where care, they're more carefree. And um, often it's quoted to him that, well, actually it was okay, the wrongdoings or sins were okay at that time. And, you know, it doesn't really matter because people were none the wiser. And he's asking, is there a particular Islamic viewpoint on this? Well, our journey uh, throughout our life from the cradle to the grave is an important journey that we all transcend. And Islam reminds us that the life on this earth is of a very temporary nature, that we will only spend a small part of our life, uh, entire life here, before we pass on to the next. So what every soul looks forward to is what he is sending for the world to come for the morrow. This is what the Holy Quran teaches us. So every instance of our life is important in, in that respect, that there is accountability, that Allah will call us to account for whatever deeds that we did on this earth. And the second thing that is important is that the accountability starts when we become aware of what is good and what is bad. So depending on maturity, as a child grows, he learns from people around him, he learns from his parents, he learns from his teachers as to what is good and what is bad. And when he is able, has, has that accountability, then he should be obviously be carrying out a life that is to the good mm -hmm. and trying to keep away from all those ills that there are out there in the world and, and in life in general. So our life should always have that uh, color in it so that we are able to make sure that we are accountable for the deeds that we have done. So it is not a matter of having a careless life and not being worrying that we committed a sin and that we will not be called to account for it because we were not of a mature enough age. As I say, that once we have attained that maturity and we know what is right and what is wrong, then we certainly will be called to account by Allah. But obviously we do rely upon the forgiveness of Allah and that is a different subject. We know that when a child grows up, for instance, parents do teach him all the aspects of living a, a good life mm -hmm. and keeping away from e evil. And for instance, he is taught the Holy Quran, he is taught the prayers so that he lives his life as a Muslim. And age comes into that, the, the, the question of age does certainly come into that. Not sure what age Wahid Ahmad is, but you know, the, the, one of the criteria we do find is that uh, children should be taught their prayers and should be taught the Holy Quran from an early age mm -hmm. so that when they reach the age of seven, they should be standing with you and saying their prayers and being able to understand that this is a form of worship that is obligatory upon them. And in Hadith, we know that when a child reaches the age of 12, then a certain amount of strictness should also be imposed upon them so that they are made sure that they are stricken to the practices of Islam that have been put out for us. So that is the ages that we are roughly talking about, but certainly even before that, once we know what is right and what is wrong, we should always be careful as to we are keeping within the limits and not contravening the law that Allah has prescribed for us. Mm -hmm. So our life should always be on a careful nature and making sure that we have a sense that this life is temporary, we will be called to account uh, for our deeds in this world, and therefore we should always be casting good deeds for the life to come in the hereafter. Mm -hmm.
again, very clear. On this as well, I mean, compared to other faiths, for example, in, in Catholicism, you have this, you know, confession where, you know, you've committed a sin, you can go along and, uh, you know, confess to what, and the sin is forgiven. But within Islam, the context, as Dr. Saab's already alluded to, forgiveness is from God. Indeed, we, you know, in the Holy Quran, it says God is the God of mercy, mm. God is the God of forgiveness. But is it the case that if someone goes on doing the same thing and says, well, actually, God, I'll just go and pray and God will forgive me, that then it's okay? Yes, I, I think we understand that mm. man is a creature of habits. Mm. And habits, we know, are formed in childhood. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the hardest ones to break. Even with the advance of knowledge and experience of a person, that habit which you have formed in that very formative years, we, that's why we call them formative years when you're young. And so it's so important. I mean, we just think about it in terms of a plant. If you, if you plant something now and the stem comes up and you begin to see the initial plant, it's, it's very soft and pliable. Push it in one direction or, or tie it to a, a, a stick or something and, and let it grow for a while. It'll be bent in that direction. Mm -hmm. And even later on, if it goes up, that, that bend stays there in that plant. And it's harder to get it to be perfectly aligned and symmetrical as you would want the plant to look like. So children should realize that at this formative stage, if they allow bad habits to creep in and begin committing sins, thinking, oh, God forgives me and it's okay, there's no, there's no consequence. This is exactly what Islam says, goes against the spirit of God's mercy. The mercy was from day one and he wants us to follow a pattern that will produce the strongest foundation for us upon which we can build you know, levels and levels of, of further growth. Not to destroy the foundation and say, yes, this, I'm young now, I can go back and reconstruct mm -hmm. later on, it's okay, you know, God's merciful. He is merciful, but the result will be there. And a lot of times when you get older, you look back, psychologists say all the time, you know, what was your childhood like? What happened? You know, what were some of the experiences? And these, so everyone realizes mentally, spiritually, socially, economically, there's so many layers you can look at. In the young ages, children should not take a carefree attitude about life. And the Holy Prophet Muhammad so was very critical in looking at youth and correcting them to make sure they don't do certain things. Even his own child, once who took part of what he considered charitable uh, distribution and was taking it to eat, he, he stopped him from, from taking that. Why? It's a small child. Again, he realizes that this child, even at a young age, is beginning to learn patterns and should be corrected even then, gently, wisely, but still corrected. And so this should be kind of the best way of approaching life, not just uh, letting it all go. Yeah. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Wahid Ahmed. Just picking up on the f final point there, I suppose it was the, um, about youth and young people. It was the second Khalifa. Uh, of the Amdiya Muslim community who famously said, you know, that nations cannot be reformed by first yes, yes. Uh, without reforming their youth and uh, therein lies the future of every country. My thanks to Wahid Saab for your question. Um, our next question comes from Bushra Saiba in London. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your question. And this relates to the whole issue and it's a topical one, very current, about environmental responsibility. Indeed, we see everyone from governments to corporates to schools indeed society as a whole, being very environmentally conscious now of everything. Um, a company always has these statements now of corporate social responsibility. What are they doing to help the environment? Every government seeks to, some would argue it does exist, i.e. climate change, others argue it doesn't. Um, but nevertheless, even here in the UK recently, we've uh, been through three days of smog in the uh, southeast and London from 
sands carried over from the Western Sahara. So it just shows how climates and environments can change. Jhangirsaab, is there a sort of guidance given with Islam? I mean, it's a massive topic, environmental responsibility. But just, I mean, in general terms, is the environment, does it have any relevance in Islam? It has a lot of relevance in Islam, and uh, we can see that from day one. Actually, there is a whole corpus of, um, how would I say, ethics, which is, uh, you know, ethical teachings, which is given out to the Muslims from the very beginning. And first of all, the Muslims are told in the Holy Quran that you should eat and you <coughs> should drink, but do not go over the limit. Do not consume, you know, excessively of anything, neither of food or of drink. So that's as far as eating is concerned. Then you will see that Islam also imposes certain restrictions, sometimes on certain months of the year. For example, when Muslims go for the Hajj, then they don't have the right to, to hunt. There were uh, so many different months uh, you know, where in the, the Islamic calendar where you don't actually hunt, you cannot hunt. So the animals out there get a, you know, they get a kind of a, a period in the year where there will be no hunting in Muslim territories. That's another thing. Then you see the Holy Prophet Muhammad saying, even if you're at war, which is a, an extreme you know, set of circumstances, extreme situation, you cannot cut down trees wantonly. You cannot, especially fruit-bearing trees. He specifically forbade people to do that. Then he also said, and this is a very big issue these days, he said that the skins of predatory animals cannot be put to use by the Muslims. So do not hunt those animals for their skins. Now we know that apex predators are always in very small numbers. It's always the prey which are in large numbers and the predatory animals will take a few of them without really leaving a big dent on their population and they can always recover very fast. But if, if uh, people start you know, um, diminishing the numbers of predatory animals, especially the apex ones at the top of the food chain, this has a very severe impact on the whole environment and what happens is uh, prey, you know, then become, they multiply, they get out of hand and for example in America it was uh, when wolves were reintroduced into, uh, I think it was uh, Yellowstone from Canada recently, just in recent years, um, what happened was they people were, of course, you know, there, were, there was a big divide, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we, because introducing big, you know, massive predators into a, an inhabited area, because there are, of course, inhabit inhabitants around the park, mm. could be a bad thing. But what they discovered was that the forests there immediately started to recover. Because the wolves were hunting down, you know, the wapiti and the other kinds of, uh, you know, deer, which were decimating uh, trees, which just couldn't reproduce, because as soon as the shoots would come out, the new shoots would come out anywhere, they'd be eaten. But because of the wolves, even by fright, sometimes those deer wouldn't enter certain areas, and so the trees were regenerating. And so you see that Islam already, when it speaks about these things, it can have a large impact on life. But Islam goes, of course, much further and says, even, you know, as a general rule, Muslims should always adopt the middle path. And when we come to pollution, then that's a whole other vista, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The Holy Prophet Muhammad said that even, even urinating in places from which people are taking drinking water is forbidden. Now that's just urine which will break down at some point. But he forbade even that. 
So that means we can imagine if we use our, our intellect, we will understand that things which are worse than urine are of course not to be poured into you know, places where people will be taking war, drawing water from. So there are, there are many, many teachings given in Islam which guarantee the, uh, you know, the safeguard and the enhancement even of the environment. And uh, it would take probably several programs to go into all of them in detail. But in general, that's uh, kind of you know, how it is. Jazakumullah, again, very clear, Jahangir Islam. What does Islam, you know, to, to sort of put it out there, uh, Islam and its green credentials isn't something we hear a great deal about. I mean, as Jahangir Islam just illustrated, it permeates every element of life. It's there. Indeed, you know, let's protect the tiger. Let's uh, ensure that this animal doesn't fall victim. Indeed, you know, animal skins shouldn't be hunted elephants dying in different parts of the world. Here was the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, over 1400 years ago, giving a specific directive that this wasn't the case, wasn't heeded. And, but those who are perhaps critics of Islam would say, well, we don't hear anything about this. We don't hear about Islam, you know, placards and banners and great sort of vision for environment. That's, that's what's really unfortunate about the whole way Islam is, is being uh, presented to the world. Mm -hmm. It's looked at just a theology Absolutely. and the, the rigid code of <clears throat> rituals and rites which one has to practice in order to be a Muslim and follow a certain injunction that comes in terms of the do's and the don'ts. But the broader sense of what Islam really has come to present, uh, hardly few, few people have heard about this. And this is one of those areas where we as Muslims haven't really done service to ourselves by sharing the knowledge base that was given to us in the Quran and in the Hadith, the traditions of the Holy Prophet Muhammad And one of the primary reasons that we can look at that time was because he lived in the desert and he had to be an environmentalist for everyone to survive in that very harsh environment. So you had to conserve water, you had to be careful about the consumption of the animals, how you took care of the plants. Every single plant and every single tree had a value. And he said about the date plant, it is not a single part of that tree that doesn't have some benefits. So you should look at every part of your environment as, 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 as uh, Jahangir Sahib said, a bounty from God. And you are the custodian of those bounties. And you are to preserve them for not yourself, but for the future generations. And he talks about these things. And uh, I mean, it, it strikes me that now we're in this age of all this advanced knowledge and science. But recently I was sitting with one of my children watching the scenes of this search for this plane that went down somewhere. We don't know where. Yeah. But they were searching in the oceans, and I said to her, look, look, they can't find it because of all the junk in the seas. Yeah. And she was shocked. She, she, she never thought about how much we have polluted our oceans. And it's just all man-made yeah. waste floating around, and in, in the midst of that, you're trying to find something okay. there. Yeah. And this is the problem. So the prophet told us to be careful about the refuge, as he mentioned, and throwing things away, and cleaning the streets, and all these principles which will eliminate pollution, or at least minimize them, protect the environment, every part of it, which insects, the animals, the, the fowl, because it's a chain reaction. You, need, you lose one part of it, they all get affected in a domino effect. You know, those seas that are being polluted by oil tankers dropping things or whatever happening, it affects the fowl, which now affects the industries that are living from these things. And so it's, it's really important to us as Muslims to go back to this body of knowledge, to analyze it again, and to put it into the modern scientists to say this, these are principles which can help us to regenerate and to preserve our environment for ourselves and our future generations. It's all there by God's grace. Before we move on, Dr. Saab, coming to you on this as well. I mean, we hear this constantly, climate change, you know, that temperatures are rising and we get more extreme conditions, 
you know, in parts of the world which were quite moderate or whatever. And this phenomenon is at times put down to the fact that humans themselves have created this situation, whereas those who are sceptics argue that, well, this is just part of the general evolution of the world. Um, is there an Islamic sort of perspective on this, or is it a mixture probably of both? Well, that debate certainly does go on, and science, as you say, is divided on, on that aspect. But we have seen the effects of that, certainly, haven't we? I mean, whether it is man-made or whether it is a cyclic change. Mm -hmm. Even in, in UK, we have seen changes in that in the winter just having passed the, the uh, rain that we had, and the summers are getting hotter. So there certainly is that element to it, and there is no doubt that man has been part of the problem. And uh, as my two colleagues have uh, so categorically described beautifully as to what the Islamic viewpoint on, on that is. So man, it is man's responsibility, whether it is cyclic or not cyclic, man has got a responsibility to make sure that the environment is looked after for our future generations. And the Holy Quran is very specific on that. He, he say, Allah says, La in shakartum la adidanakum, wala in kafartum inna azabila shadid. So there is a message, a clear message in that as far as our world is concerned, that if we if if we use the bounties that God has granted us beneficently, according to the teachings of the Holy Quran and according to the <laughs> He will go on multiplying those for us and we will continue to reap the benefits and blessings of that. But there is a warning in that. But if you misuse them, then my punishment is severe. So this is, this is the danger that if we do not look after the environment and we misuse the bounties that God has granted us, water and, and air and so on, then certainly man will be made to suffer as far as that is concerned. And I think that one of the things that we have highlighted is cleanliness is after all part of our faith. Indeed. And the Prophet ﷺ has made sure that we are aware of that on every aspect of our life as far as that is concerned. But as far as projects are concerned and what Islam or what Muslim communities are doing, let me just say this, that as far as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is concerned, we are very much aware of the problems that there are in the world as far as this is concerned. And the uh, Architects and Engineers Association have got projects in parts of the world as far as renewable energy is concerned. So it is at the forefront there in trying to make sure that the uh, renewable energy comes to the forefront and man benefits from that according to the teachings of the Holy Quran. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, as I said from the outset, a vast subject, just picking up on the renewables theory. I think every country wrestles with this kind of energy mix idea that part of the issues and challenges in the climatic changes are you know, coal-powered power, uh, power stations, you know, there's a whole debate on nuclear energy, and then we're talking about the discharge of nuclear energy waste and so on and so forth, but I'm sure we'll return to this topic again, but for now my thanks to all three of you, of course, and my thanks also to Bushra Saiba for a very relevant um, uh, question to today's world. Um, our next question, in a way, ca continues with the same theme. Assalamu alaikum uh, to Mohsin Sahib from Canada. Um, Mohsin is uh, 14, and uh, he likes to firstly thank everyone on Faith Matters. Well, thank you also, Mohsin, for writing in uh, with your question. And his quest question, in a way, continues this theme, as I said. It's about extin extinction of animals and so on and so forth. And he, he, he mentions in his questions quite sort of uh, specific examples, such as violent uh, violent animals such as uh, pumas he's put down, you could talk about tigers and lions, uh, or also poisonous ones like rattlesnakes. 
And his suggestion is that, well, shouldn't they just be made extinct because they go after us for no reason, us being man? Mm -hmm. Although the counter to it could be that man probably goes after animals for no reason yes, at times. Yes, yes, yes. You know, strangely, if one has complete knowledge of Allah's creation, then you may be able to make these kind of judgment calls. Mm -hmm in terms of the long and short-term impact of any particular animal or, or insect in our environment. But without that complete knowledge, how would we know mm -hmm. what benefits lie in any particular part of creation? And Allah has said that there's no disease but for which we have created a cure. Some of the cures that we have found are in these so-called poisonous deadly animals, in sure. their venom even. Mm -hmm. And these venoms as scientists later discover, have such a great benefit for, for mankind. The stinging insects, which he may refer to, again, there are things in these insects, learning not perhaps from their products, but even the form of their creation. To learn, for instance, how to create certain kind of, uh, of uh, adhesives from some of these things, how to create a better flying machine. There's, there's so many things we learn from these creations of Allah by not knowing, and he's challenging us to seek in his creation. And he tells us as Muslims we should look at the creation and to learn. And this is what the early Muslims would do. In the in the creation of heaven and earth and the alternation of night and day, as for those who are men or women of understanding, mm -hmm. who use the sense use their capacity to observe and to investigate and to explore this world at large and learn as a result all the magnificence of God's creation and how his, man, his, his attributes manifest. Mm -hmm. So Mohsen, as a young person, should step back and not look at creation critically as if, oh, this is causing some pain here or there or some problem there, you know. Instead of seeing it, where, where is the benefit in what God has created in this thing? and search for that benefit and discover the, the benefit of Allah's creation and then share that with the world. And if it's something that is going to go extent, Allah will take care of that. Mm -hmm. He knows which should come into being. Dinosaurs no longer exist. If they were roaming the streets yeah. nowadays, it would be quite a, yeah. <laughs> quite a commotion. Quite a you know? So he took yeah. those out before we came on, on, yeah. on, onto the stage. So he knows what to bring in and what to take out. And I think we should leave it at that. And just as a final point, Yungus, I'm picking up in a way this also comes back to the point you made in the previous question about the introduction of uh, wolves, as you said, that this kind of natural cycle, what you may perceive as being harmful, even rattlesnakes in a desert or whatever, have a purpose and they've been put there for a purpose and by taking them out wholesale may result in a change in nature which we don't actually or cannot comprehend. Exactly. I mean, taking up on what uh, Azhar Saab has uh, very succinctly said here, we, we don't have all the knowledge. So it would be the height of arrogance to, to assume we do and then to start playing God, you know, literally and saying, okay, this one doesn't, can't stay here and that one can't stay there. We mustn't forget as well that man has also moved into the habitats of a lot of wild animals out there. And if you're moving into puma territory, you should expect to see some pumas visiting your gardens. And the same for rattlesnakes. You know, if you want to go and live in those places, then you have to expect something or other. But as Mohsen is a very young man here, I'd like to, to put out a message there for all the young people. And it is that, uh, of course, the Prophet ﷺ did say that if there are harmful things in the vicinity of where people are living, then they should be removed. But they should also be removed humanely. 
And always the teaching in Islam is even if you have to kill something because of that, then it should be done in a humane fashion which reduces the pain of the thing. Young people are wanting, especially young boys, to go out with their catapults and you know, air guns and things these days and shoot randomly you know, at birds and other things. And so they must also remember that this is also bad. It's not a good thing to cultivate. Taking up on the, the same topic as before, the habits which we develop when we're young, they will have a bearing on the rest of our lives later. You know, in, 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 in Persian even, as a kind of a, an encouragement to be pure and virtuous when you're young, uh, they say, Pak damani darjavani shivai pirambari, which means that uh, if you have virtue and purity when you're young, in, in your youth, this is also on the style of prophethood. So people who are pure and, and virtuous when they're young, later on they grow up to become virtuous people. Mm -hmm. So the thing is that Hazrat Khalifa Rabi as well, the fourth Khalifa of our community, rahimahullah, he also said that I would encourage um, um, parents to give their children pets to keep, because if they show their children how to deal kindly with these animals, later on those very children would grow up to become good people who would also know how to deal with, sorry, with human beings kindly. So it all starts in childhood. So therefore, you know, if we do have to get rid of rattlesnakes or pumas or whatever, we have to let the authorities deal with it and not take matters into our own hands and start becoming cruel because later on these cruelties could be carried forward into our adult life. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, for that. Now, I was always, uh, when I visited Australia and our mosque there, I, I was very, for some, someone who's a total urbanite living in London, um, uh, uh, suddenly seeing kangaroos sort of hopping around the mosque uh, grounds was quite a novelty. And they were very nice. They actually posed for a photograph as well, which really? I thought was you know, terribly just generous. This week, <laughs> talking about kangaroos, uh, they've, they've just recently released news on the invention of a kind of a robotic system mm -hmm. which uh, conserves energy by hopping. And this is completely uh, copied from the, the uh, system of locomotion of kangaroos and wallabies. Mm, and so, like Azasab said, you know, we can learn so much from nature by copying the exquisite designs which we find there for the benefit of, of mankind as well. Well, there we are. The kangaroos are teaching us a thing or two, and I'm sure they'll continue to teach us a few things in the future as well. But gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Mohsin for your question. Um, our next question it comes from Ibrahim uh, Kwabena from Accra in Ghana. Uh, Dr. Saab, this relates to uh, a situation where someone has passed away and uh, in Islam when someone passes away of course they are bathed and before they are buried according to Islamic convention. But the question Ibrahim Saab is asking is that if somebody dies and there is no water to wash them, um, within an Islamic context you know, when someone wishes to pray and there's no water, they can perform the yamun, which is uh, in the form of cleansing in, in the absence of water. Does the same sort of principle apply if someone passes away, say in a desert or somewhere else where water isn't readily available? What happens? Well, the, the philosophy of the tayammum prior to the salat, if there is no water present, is slightly, there is a certain reason for that. And that is to prepare the worshipper for the salat that he is about to prepare. So that is more of a mental preparation mm -hmm. that he is able to focus his mind that he is about to enter into salat and he will need to focus in salat and stand before his God Almighty. However, when we talk about uh, the uh, ritual bathing of a body, there is a different philosophy related to that. 
And we cannot say that that is mentally preparing the dead person for the life hereafter because that person has obviously already passed away. So he's not aware of what is, going to, what is happening around him, but that is, a spiritual, that is a physical cleansing of the body before his new birth. So in that respect, if water is not available, and that must be quite an extreme situation uh, in, in wherever you are, then the body should be buried as it is without the ritual bathing because no water is available and there is no need to perform the tayyamum mm -hmm. on that body. We know, you know, in, in, in other uh, conditions, for instance, in war, uh, when, when the, on the battlefield, for instance, in the early history of Islam, when there were people who were martyred, martyrs are always buried in the condition that they, uh, that they fall. So even they are not shrouded, that they will be, they will be buried in the clothes that they were wearing. Mm -hmm. So that is the condition of martyrs, and no bathing is done in that respect either. And therefore, when water is not available, then you do not need to do the tayammum on the dead body at that time. Jazakumullah, Dr. Saba, and my thanks also to Ibrahim Saab for his question. Um, we're going to travel to the USA. Um, I know Azasab has just travelled from, um, but nevertheless, we, we're going to say a very warm assalamu alaikum to Imtiaz Ahmed Sahib. Uh, thank you very much for your kind remarks uh, about faith matters. Um, uh, that's very kind. Uh, Azasab, uh, Imtiaz Saab is asking about uh, prohibitions within Islam or that that is preferred or not preferred, and particularly in terms of certain items. And he's um, written that. We often hear about the issues of gold and silk as to who it is permissible for, men or women, and generally it's clear about that. Uh, he's asking specifically about diamonds as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's famously once said, diamonds is a girl's best friend, uh, mm -hmm. but we don't really hear that diamonds are a man's best friend or a boy's best friend. Mm -hmm. and it is truly a uh, subject which comprises in these days both men and women. Mm -hmm because the fashion statements of the modern society is uh, it's almost a, it's a, a unisex approach, you know, one size fits all. And, uh, and, and thus you'll find that men are equally using ornamentation now, uh, and in some cases even more so than the women. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the, the use of the, the earrings, the necklaces, the, all the different things, and the, the parts to put on clothing, et cetera, to enhance, to, to, mm -hmm. to beautify. And to an extent, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Islam doesn't discourage a man from having a, a groomed, neat, you know, appealing appearance and using good clothing, etc. Mm -hmm. What Islam has always said from the beginning, and this was stressed by the Holy Prophet Muhammad so, so. there should be a definite distinction between these two sexes. Mm -hmm. A man should look like a man, a woman looks like a woman. And he, con he condemned a man that gives the appearance of a woman and vice versa. He also did not like a woman to have the appearance of a man. Mm -hmm. So that you can clearly know by looking at this person, they stand for something, man and female. And secondly, he said, the reason behind this is because both have certain roles to play in society. The man has a, a masculine feature and, and, a, and a role of strength and, and, and being virile, etc. But if he begins to use ornamentations and certain ar articles, uh, silk, silk and laden, etc., this leads him to have the psychological effect of weakening his own strength and masculinity. And uh, unfortunately, it also creates, uh, you can say, the, the, the lack of those qualities being developed. In fact, in the Holy Quran, when you look at the, the, the children of Israelites, children of Israel, 
This is exactly what the Pharaoh did. He killed the masculine qualities amongst them and let the feminine qualities come alive. We are now doing it to ourselves in, in some respect, in, in this way we're uh, adopting articles. So the, the Quran and the Hadith allow these ornaments to be used primarily by women and says to men to not use them because in so doing you will adopt a style of life, a, a, a thinking of life that aligns you with the women and you should be distinct from them and you should be separate from them in this, this pattern. So there's nothing specifically that condemns diamonds mm -hmm. in the hadith. What is a general rule is the ornamentation, the zina, mm -hmm. that we should re keep all of them, whether it's diamonds or rubies or pearls or, or, or whatever that may be. These are decorations that are preferred for the women in life and not so much for the men in life. And we should try to draw that distinction. Lastly, uh, look at the example, if this is a Muslim, of all the great Muslim men you would know in the history of Islam. And tell me where you see any of them ever <coughs> using these things, using diamonds, using pearls, using gold, using the, the, the silken garments. You see the opposite, that they avoided it as a, almost like it's a plague because they understood this. And these are our role models. Even now, you can't say, oh, that was old times. It Everything was there in the days of these early companions, whether they were living in Arabia or wherever. So I would say we should focus on these as our models and not try to justify you know, the modern fashions and styles which, which give us certain articles. Of course, there's a caveat, and we, 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 we realize that sometimes you go overboard. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you get so <coughs> strict in trying to apply these things, which can be almost like makru, you know, a little bit they're, they're disliked. They're not sinful behavior. You know, if a man walks down the street and he has a ring on it with a little, you know, <coughs> a gold thing or a watch with a little piece of, of a diamond here, you, we're not going to run behind him and, and start beating him and say, take that off, you know, you're, you're a sinner. You're just before we move on, uh, Dr. Sahib, I suppose just develop things slightly further. It was interesting when Azasal was talking about this whole development of an industry, and we've probably seen it not just in terms of adornments, in terms of items, but the way clothing has developed, the way the cosmetics in industry has developed now. There's a mm. whole vast <clears throat> cosmetics industry for men which has now emerged, which is almost running on parallel to the cosmetic industry for women. And this has been uh, developed more of recent times. Um, and, and it's one of those uh, issues only this week I was watching one of those political programs where they were talking about the enhanced use of makeup for women. And the woman that, who they had on is a very established broadcaster, Angela Rippon. And she said, it's funny we're talking about women and makeup today, yet here you are sitting in the studios. And she pointed to two of her <laughs> male uh, sort of colleagues on the panel who were clearly had makeup on. And she said, but the context is that it's still perceived as something which is associated with women as opposed to men, yet we see the industries booming. Yes, we, we certainly don't have any makeup when we come no, on this program, do we? <laughs> In case that, that could be the next question. But, but, yes, but uh, certainly, I mean, that, that, that industry is, is a flourishing, booming industry. And uh, as Azasab has said, that the differentiation between man and women is something that the Holy Prophet ﷺ has clearly spoken about. But it's interesting that we are seeing that there is a merging of these two sexes at the moment. And after all, that was one of the predictions and signs that the Holy Prophet ﷺ said about the latter days, that a time would come when a man would look like a woman and a woman would look like a man, both in terms of their dress and their outlook and their jobs. 
And that we are exactly seeing, aren't we now? Mm -hmm. That if you go to the city of London or any other city, the, the jobs that were used to be done by the male domination, women are now in those powerful situations. They dress up in, in the way the man, man dresses up and vice versa. So this is, after all, a fulfillment of the sign of the Holy Prophet and the cosmetic industry is also giving us the same message as far as that is concerned. So that is what the Holy Prophet predicted, that is what has happened, and that is where the man, mankind has gone. And so therefore the teacher who was to come, that, is our, that should be our focus, is that these signs are predictions coming fulfillment. So we should be looking for who the reformer was that was also yeah. predicted in that respect. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to uh, Imtiaz Saab uh, for your question. Our next question comes from Nasser Mahmoud Saab from Canada. Um, again, Jazakumullah Nasser Saab for your kind comments about the program. Um, Jahangir Saab, he's asking um, uh, a question that was put to him by a non-MD Muslim friend of his. And this was something his friend observed, that um, on visiting a mosque, he noticed, and this was a mosque under the jurisdiction of the MD Muslim community, it was one of the community's mosques. But he noticed that whilst his friend was visiting, his friend noticed that there were others who came to the mosque who were not Muslim, but were permitted to enter the mosque, of course, view the mosque, but were also allowed to mm. pray in the mosque. And he's saying, what is the basis of such an allowance, which certainly his friend thought was uh, something different. You see, in, in Islam, what we've been taught is that the mosque doesn't belong to the people. The mosque belongs to God. He said, it's my house. So who are you to forbid people from, he actually, Allah actually says in the Quran, who are you to forbid people to come to my mosque, to my house, to worship me? So that is the premise that we, we, you know, we, we build up the argument on. But also we have uh, the uh, example of the Prophet Muhammad There's a very well-known incident where the Prophet Muhammad had received the visit of a delegation of Christians from Najran. <clears throat> Sorry, and uh, they wanted to ask certain questions to find out if he was really a prophet from God or not. And although the visit itself is mentioned uh, in the hadith uh, to some degree, the actual incident of them praying in his mosque, which is what I was going to come to, is not mentioned in the hadith it's, uh, themselves, but we do find it, for example, in the very well-known uh, As-Sira Nabawiyya, or the, you know, the life uh, story of the Prophet, which was written by Muhammad ibn Ishaq, Ishaq and that's taken as a narration, actually, from Muhammad uh, ibn Jafar ibn Zubair. So it's on very good, uh, you know, a very good source. It's also been mentioned in other books like the Jamia Ahkam uh, al-Qur'an, which is by Imam Qurtubi, who's one of the very well-known scholars of, uh, you know, of Islam. And even in the Tafsir ibn Kathir, it's mentioned there. So all Muslims will know about this. Um, that he actually allowed, when the, the time for prayer came for the, for the Christians, he actually allowed them to pray in his own mosque, mm -hmm. in the prophetic mosque, the um, um, Masjid al-Nabawi. And he said, you know, you don't have to go anywhere. Just pray here. So they removed all the, took out all their implements and whatever they used for their liturgy, and they prayed in his mosque. So that is a precedent which was set by the Prophet ﷺ himself. Now, if somebody after that wants to come and pray in a mosque, who are we to stop them from doing so? But of course, there is at least a, 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 you know, a limit of decorum which they'll have to you know, follow. And by that, I don't mean that the ladies will have to dress like Muslim women do. That's not it. 
but it is that they have to respect the sanctity of the place. For example, if part of their um, service uh, you know, will require, let's say, an animal sacrifice or something, they, they won't be able to do that in the mosque because the mosque will be polluted by this thing where people prostrate, where people pray. Mm. So while re remaining within the limits of the sanctity of the mosque, they are more than welcome to come and pray in any mosque because which mosque is greater than the mosque of the Prophet Muhammad If it was good enough for his mosque, it's good enough for any mosque. Very clear and concise and uh, I think that answers this question. I think the other issue very much, Jahangir Saab, is of course when you, as you've touched on, when you go to someone else's place of worship, for example if you go to a Sikh Gurdwara, there's a particular attire, you're asked to cover your head and uh, and you follow those traditions because you're respecting someone else's faith and that's also incumbent on a Muslim when they visited, visit other places of worship. Of course, we must follow the, the, you know, the, the etiquette which is in place. But in Islam, uh, although there are many visitors who very, very politely and very kindly, among ladies I mean, uh, you know, do come covered because they think that this is the way that they have to show respect to a mosque, it's very nice of them, but actually it's not required of them. They can come as they as they wish, as long as they're you know dressed decently as you know as is the norm of society. Then of course they they're allowed to come. So this is a, another thing which uh, uh, which could be brought onto you know the idolaters coming into the the precinct of the Kaaba as well. There's a certain decorum which they'll have to respect. As long as they they follow that, then it should be you know allowed in in, the, in that respect. Jazakallah, and my thanks also to uh, Nasser Mahmoud Saab for your question. Our next question comes from Rizwan Ahmad Saab from here in the UK. Um, he's quoting a personal incident here about um, acquiring a pair of shoes. He bought a pair of shoes and he found out later on that they were made from pig leather um, who, from a friend of his who actually works um, at that particular shoe company. He's basically asking Azhar Sahib, what's the stance on that? You know, one can talk of shoes, one can talk of other items, jackets perhaps, but he's asking, <laughs> I've bought these pair of shoes now, I guess, uh, what should I do with them? Should he bin them? Uh, I, I guess I can imagine his consternation, you know, finding out <laughs> after the fact that uh, I'm wearing something which... He probably felt quite pleased with the pair uh, of shoes. Uh, yes, they're probably very nice shoes, yeah, you know, fit him well. He, obviously he bought them in yeah. style, fashion, the whole bit. But someone told him that, look, this is made out of a certain kind of leather. Mm -hmm. Well, extend it on out to any kind of leather that can be out there. You know, it could be a rattlesnake, it could be the, the skin of crocodile, it can be so many Absolutely. things. It could be furs from different wild, exotic animals, as we spoke about earlier. Are we going to say that all things we cannot consume cannot be used? Is that what we're saying in, in, as a position? Or are we saying that according to the Quran, the animals which perish and whose skins are tanned uh, are, are able for us to be used in different kind of articles, whether that's uh, for clothing or for you know, housing material, mm -hmm. etc. And I'm sure we understand it's the latter, because even the Holy Prophet Muhammad so himself, himself, he allowed, and in one hadith, the, the use of an animal which had perished. It was, uh, I believe it was a, a goat, uh, had, had died. And we all know that the meat of a dead animal is equally in the same passage in Surah Al-Maidah, mm -hmm. forbidden to be eaten as the swine is, is forbidden and the blood and all these things. So we, he should have said, because this is dead flesh, you have no right to use it, discard it. But he said, no, the skin of this animal can be used. Why not take benefit from the animal? Mm -hmm. 
So he's showing us that it's the consumption of the swine flesh which is forbidden in Islam. It's not the use of this particular form of leather which is completely forbidden. Now it boils down to a matter of personal preference and taste. You know whether mm. you still feel uncomfortable using an article of this nature. And personally, I probably would not. You know, if I knew yeah. beforehand, I would. And this young man would have done the same. Yeah. Mm. But after the fact, it doesn't mean he has to to bend them, trash them, because oh my God, this is made from pig leather, and this is somehow haram, according to the test, uh, the the verdicts of certain groups, certain uh, scholars, that this is actually beyond makruh, which should be completely forbidden as the eating of its flesh is forbidden. But uh, I think that's extending this uh, prohibition of Quran way past its, its, its uh, purview uh, into an area where it, it wasn't meant to go in terms of uh, forbidding the use of the animal's skin and, and leather for these products. As I said, if, if that's the case, then we'll, we'll get into a real slippery slope with all these other things that are being used out here, and there'll be no end to it. So we'll be limited to just using goat, goat meat and camel hairs and, and these kind of things, and, and this is not what Islam is talking about. So I would uh, again say to Rizwan that he should relax a bit. Uh, if he doesn't feel good about it, to give it to some you know, second, second-hand shop and Absolutely. let them use it. But if he feels comfortable with this explanation, then let him go ahead and wearing it. I don't think anyone's walking around staring at shoes and saying, well, I think you have on today. <laughs> Apart from his friend, yeah, yeah. of course. Apart from his friend, dead. Yeah. Which, <laughs> he should start wondering why his friend is looking at his feet so much and questioning the, the shoes he's wearing, because that's getting a little bit too close and personal, uh, if you ask me. Jazakumullah, Azhar Saab, for that. And my thanks also to Rizwan Saab. But uh, as Azhar Saab, so aptly pointed out. I suppose on these things it comes down to personal preference. I mean, you could argue this further, sometimes, that, you know, I mean, even, you know, certain foods now carry their, their actual chemicals or whatever and their flavorings. They're not actually the actual animal or whatever themselves, but because there is that mindset, you, you tend not to go there. And, you know. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know for sure that uh, insulin, for instance, it comes from m mainly the pig. Uh, but it is broken down into its chemical components and it is beneficial for man to use in that respect. So therefore Islam allows us to, to uh, use it as far as we are keeping within the guidelines that Azhar Sahib has also talked about. Exactly, and I suppose if you're diabetic, that's your lifeline. So uh, a very appropriate example to finish on. And my thanks also to uh, Rizwan Ahmed Sahib. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.